This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You guys have heard me talk about Red Door Grill for almost a year now on 610 Sports Radio, and they're the proud sponsor of the Bobcast. And I'll tell you what, I'm a proud eater at Red Door Grill. In fact, my family and I love going to Red Door Grill, not just on Mondays for burgers or Thursdays for fried chicken, but just about every single day of the week. Because every time we walk into a Red Door Grill location, we're walking out of there feeling satisfied, feeling great, and knowing we got some of the best food in Kansas City. $5 burgers on Monday is where the week starts. You're not going to find a better deal than that. The best burger in town for just $5. You want some fries, it'll cost you a buck more. And then on Thursday, we have the jalapeno dipped fried chicken. That fried chicken starts marinating on Monday. It marinates on Tuesday. It marinates on Wednesday. It's got the herbs and spices to get into that chicken, and then boom, they flash fry it on Thursday to give you the best fried chicken that you'll ever have. And then, of course, happy hour every weekday, Monday through Friday from 3 to 6. That's where we cash in sometimes on Fridays as well. Enjoy those great drinks. Enjoy the great appetizer specials from 3 to 6 every single weekday at Red Door Grill. And with three locations, there's one close to everybody. 159th and Antioch, 119th and uh, Row in Town Center Plaza in Leewood and Camelot Court. And, of course, you can find the location in Brookside as well. It's Red Door Grill. For the last 13 years, Mike Swanson has been the vice president of communications for the Kansas City Royals. And that means he's seen everything inside the locker room, outside the locker room, celebrations to great moments to everything in between. Mike Swanson's been there when it's happened over the last 13 years for the Kansas City Royals. But also, he's been there when it's happened in sports. Because over the last 40 years, if there's been a big sporting event, Mike Swanson's been there. A Super Bowl, a Final Four, World Series championships. He's been there, he's covered it, and he's watched those games up front and in person. Here's the story of Royals Vice President of Communications, Mike Swanson. I mean, for a kid that grew up here in Kansas City, how cool was that day, 2015, at Shea Stadium, winning that World Series championship for the uh, for the Kansas City Royals? What was that like for you? No, oh, you know, it, it, Bob, it was... Uh... The word dream come true is so cliche, but we all have them. And, uh, you know, to have been around the block, if you will, to grow up in Kansas City, leave for 23 years, and then get hired back uh, in 2007 by your hometown club, uh, that was struggling, you know, but it was it was taking on a change. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wanted to be a part of that change when I heard other people who were part of it. And, uh, you know, to, to grow with that group – and I had been through two expansion clubs, and uh, one went to the playoffs, the other won a World Series, and it was cool. But nothing was better than to come to a club that had bottomed out, that was your hometown club, and then to be standing there on the uh, third step of the dugout when that last out was recorded, when Wade Davis got that strikeout. I think the coolest moment, and I don't know how many people know this, Dayton knows I tell this story periodically, but uh, there was a foul ball, and... Uh, I look behind me just to kind of get my bearings as to who's around and where's everybody, and Dayton's standing right there, and it's like the first time I've ever seen the general manager in the dugout during a game. Mm-hmm. And I look back, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm not going to miss this. And so Wade gets the strikeout, 
Drew puts the ball away, and I got to hug somebody, and I'm not running out on the field to be in the mosh pit. That's the player's party. And so I turned around, and the first person I hugged was Dayton, and, and I'll never forget that moment for as long as I live because uh, it was just the epitome of all the work that he had put in, all the work a lot of other people, including myself, had put in. But he put that club together, and to be able to stand there next to the architect and and uh, see that moment come to fruition was something special. I, I don't think anybody ever gets tired of those stories from the 2015 and 2014 season. Like I could sit here and listen to stories all day from anybody who was involved, and I know there's a lot of people out there that love listening to those stories because it was such a great time. I, t- I tell people all the time the greatest month I've ever had in my career was October of 2014 because it was the first time we've ever experienced anything like that. It was just a tremendous, tremendous deal. And if I'm speaking to you know like the Kiwanis Club or something like that, I'll ask all these businessmen, what's the best month of your career? <laughs> and they look at you and they go, oh, I, I know exactly when mine was. And, and it was it was such a great moment because it galvanized this town. Like We needed this town to be galvanized more than ever. And I think the Royals came along with their winning right at the right time, obviously for the franchise, but I think for Kansas City as a whole as well, too. No question. Uh, no question. You know, it, uh, you know, I was a Chiefs fan at heart growing up, and, and you want them to be successful as well, but uh, they weren't getting where the fan base wanted them to be. And, I, and as a fan, I felt the same way. You know, yeah. I wanted them to be, I wanted them to be as, as good as anybody in the NFL. And uh, I didn't know when our day was going to come. And, uh, you know, I walked out of the office after the final day of the 2013 season, and I had just this special feeling knowing that we were headed in some direction. I mean, a good direction. We were, we were pointing north for the first time since I'd been here. And what's that mean? It means you had a good finish and you got a good taste in your mouth. But I couldn't wait for 2014 to start. And then you know, as as every 162 game season has in it, it's got that up and down roller coaster ride. But that night in Chicago, when we got the monkey off our back, if you will, just to get into the game, just mm-hmm. to get into the party. But I'll never forget Ned. Um, you know, just he wanted everybody to enjoy the night, and we still had a chance to win the division. You know, we went into Sunday. If we went on Sunday and Detroit loses, we're going to play them on Monday mm-hmm. for the right to not have to play on Tuesday. Right. But uh, that didn't happen. But but Ned was pretty adamant in his mindset that until we went on Tuesday night uh, against the A's, we're really not in the playoffs. Now, that's a hard sell when 40,000 people are telling you, yeah, you're in the playoffs right now, and you've done it for the first time in my lifetime, you know, or mm-hmm. at least in a long, long time. But uh, but Ned was, was hell-bent on the fact that we had to win that baseball game to really prove that, that we belong. And anybody who's covered Ned as you have and, and been around Ned uh, during the time he was our manager, um, he was always feisty. But I pointed to that win against the A's as the turning point because we caught our, we caught our flight to Anaheim after the game and uh, had a press conference with very little sleep the next day in Anaheim. And I saw a completely different individual than I had been around for the previous what, seven years or what have you, uh, not even seven years, four years, five years, whatever it was, um, with Ned. And uh, I knew right then that he felt like we'd accomplished something. And it took a load off the whole club. I mean, you go from 1-0 and against Oakland to 8-0, and yeah. boom, here come the Giants. And, you know, how'd this happen? Where'd this come from? 
And it was just that one little piece of momentum that carried over from uh, that Tuesday night in Kauffman Stadium. Well, I, I want to get back to, to Ned a little bit and that, that change you saw just in one day. But, I mean, the, the wild card game, too. I mean, I think you ask anybody in Kansas City, that's probably the best sporting event they've ever been to. I mean, and unless, the, unless you were in Houston uh, yeah, a year yeah, later. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> unless you were in Houston for game four, then obviously yeah. a different ball game. But, but for everybody who was there at that game, and it's going to become one of those games that even if you weren't at, you tell everybody you were at. And you yeah, remember, it's one million one hundred sixty-four thousand. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be one of those deals. But I mean, to, to see the way that that game played out in, in your career of of being at Final Fours and Super Bowls, and we'll get into all of that as we roll along. Ha- have you ever been part of something that was so remarkable as that wild card game was? Um, not personally, you know, not not be personally invested in. Yeah. You know, uh, for me personally, um, you know, I got to admit the. 2001 World Series when we fell behind in the eighth inning to the Yankees, Game 7, after losing three games in Yankee Stadium in just heartbreaking fashion. Uh, It was the whole Mm 9-11 series, if you will. Young Hung Kim got rocked a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, it was very emotional. You know, I felt like for the only time in my career, I felt like I worked for the Raiders because the whole world at that point wanted the Yankees to win. There were only two sets of fans pulling for the Arizona Diamondbacks. It was Diamondbacks fans and Mets fans. And everybody else wanted the Yankees to win that yeah. year. And, uh, and, and so to come back in game seven and win that game, yes. I mean, I could give you other examples. I was at the Flutie game and, uh, in the Orange Bowl and, you know, to be present and see that and witness that pass and that ending uh, off the charts. You know, Michael Jordan shot at the final four. You, you know, there's so many things I've had the privilege of being a part of. But then fast forward to the wild card game in, in 14. And the right of emotions, the, you know, Shields, he just not having it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Giordano giving up the home run to Moss, uh, uh, trying to get back in the game and then falling back out of the game. Um, I remember Dyson doing his little dance over at third base. And I'm like, dude, we haven't tied this game yet. You know, do the dance after you score. Right. But uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's, who, it's who this club was. And, uh, and, and then to win it in Salvi's ball and in perfect Salvi fashion, you know, the, pitch is nowhere near being a strike and it should have been driven to the right field corner and it's yanked down the left field line and and lo and behold we're off to anaheim and and i have to tell you because if i don't get this story in now it's it's just not it doesn't fit but in the eighth inning of that game uh, my wife and daughter had their suitcases with us under the plane ready to go to anaheim and my wife worked at one of the local high schools blue springs high school my daughter was attending blue springs south and had we lost the game, they'd have both had to been at school the next day. Mm-hmm. So in the eighth inning, I look and my phone's buzzing. It's my wife sending me a text from the seat saying, hey, I'm sorry the way things are going. Uh, would you please bring our suitcases home uh, after the game? Because we're going to have to go. And I text her back and I said, honey, if we somehow win this game, um, you're not going to see your suitcase for four days because it's going to Anaheim. It's already under the plane. And uh, you're just going to have to wait for it to come back. We can't pull it off. Right. And so I get this long pause on text and everything. She's probably, I see the bubble, so she's written like four different texts and erased them. Yeah. But she's finally like giving in and said, okay, we'll stick around. Let's just hope for the best. I said, yeah, let's hope for the best. And after the game, when I saw him, it was like, I'm glad we stayed. Yeah, glad you stayed for this. Because, because Jen had the girls at the time. In, in, in 2014, they were, were, were 
four and five maybe at the oldest. They left in the eighth inning because yeah. the kids. I mean, they they. I mean, it was well. They just seen two more people in the parking lot. Had I not gotten yeah. through with that <laughs> so, text, so she like regrets that to this day. She, I can't believe we left that game in the eighth inning. She goes, but the girls were very young, and you know they they'd done all the. I mean, you sit through eight innings at four and five years oh, old. I know. That's pretty darn absolutely, and right? and and you know not really knowing what's going on out there in front of you. Yeah, you know, right. and Renee had to get up at five the next morning, so I understood that, but. I had to try to somehow convince her that you know we 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 don't leave until we're out, right. you know, until at the twenty seventh out or if whatever thirty thirtieth out, whatever it is, whatever it takes. Yeah, yeah. and 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 you know, I, I totally get the you know the whole getting up early, but you know, it's staying and being there and being in those locker rooms, getting doused with champagne, like. There's just not a better thing in sports, I don't think, than being in those clinching clubhouses. And I know some people say, "Well, why do they have to do it after every round?" Because it's fun, it's hard work, it's enjoyable, and it's a great moment to celebrate. You you just nailed it with the hard work thing. People don't understand. I, I read those tweets and I hear those comments, and and I, you know, the, the retired me will respond to those comments, but the currently employed me will just keep it to myself. But mm-hmm. the one thing I can say, if you were there on February fourteenth which is Valentine's Day, and nobody's with their wives on Valentine's Day because they're in camp, practicing, working their tails off, trying to get ready for that season. And then the 162 games, the injuries, the nicks, the knacks, the, the, the slumps, mm-hmm. uh, the good times, the bad times. I mean, there's so many things that happen in 162 games. And then you get to that night in Chicago, so 159 games, and the 160th game that night in Chicago, you're declared eligible for the postseason. You think that's not a load off your professional life? Oh, you think God, that yes. is not the greatest thing you've ever been told, that you're going to get to live to see another day and that you're going to be one of those teams that other teams are going to have to watch now? Mm-hmm. You put that in perspective. And then you win that game, and then you're off. You, you play that game on Tuesday, and you've done it in the fashion that the team did it. And then you're off to Anaheim, and you're not given a snowball's chance and you know where mm-hmm. to survive in Anaheim, and you sweep them. And then you're not given a snowball's chance against the Orioles, and you sweep them. By God, you better celebrate. You've in, you've earned every moment and every drop of that champagne. So anybody who gets offended by that just needs to understand the workload that these guys have put in. Yeah, are they paid well? Absolutely, they're paid well. And they've earned every dime that they're getting paid. But that doesn't cover the emotions. That doesn't cover the work that was put in. A lot of times people and, and fans and everybody, for for instance, we, we forget these guys are humans, yes. too. Like, we, we they're not machines. We just expect them to go out there yeah. and, and do the job and not have any emotion and stuff like that. I think more sports should embrace. Like, after the Chiefs beat the Colts this year in the in the AFC Divisional game, why not have champagne That's, in the locker room, it's a, right? It's, it's, yeah, exactly. The other sports are different, and I... I don't understand it, but that's the way they've been raised. You know, that's the way they came up in it. But our sport, uh, I hope it doesn't ever change. You know, I know there's been some incidents now due to the alcohol, and and I worry that uh, there might be an overreaction, but that overreactions tend to happen. But Mm -hmm. uh, it takes one bad apple to kind of spoil it for everybody. We've been down that road before and things. You you mentioned, you know, my kids at four and five or whatever age they were at that time, not recognizing maybe what they were watching out there. But – now, when I look at them at almost nine and ten years old, they understand the game. They get baseball, and they wouldn't like baseball if it wasn't for that game and for that team in 2014. Because they that team created fans. They still talk about Billy Butler. They still talk about Eric Cosmer. They still talk about Danny Duffy. I mean, they talk about all these players. They'll sit down and watch the Royals today, even if they're losing. They want to sit down mm-hmm. and watch the team. How, how vital do you think that run was for creating new baseball fans in Kansas City? It was. Uh... Supreme. I mean, I can't even think of the proper adjective to add to it. It's it's uh, uh, 
it, it came at a time in, in basically a make or break point in Royals history, if you will. I mean, if 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 we come off that 13 season and just have a mediocre 14 season and don't have that postseason run, and then you know this is you know revisionist history, but. Uh, 15 never happens. Just say, let, let, let's back up and pretend none of that ever happened. Mm-hmm. Um, am I still here? Is Dayton Moore still here? Is uh, Did the Glass family sell it sooner? Um, did we get to see Hosmer perform here in 15? Did we get to see Perez perform here in 15? You know, there's so many things that could have happened um, as those contracts were running down mm-hmm. um, where maybe they had to make decisions to go other ways. So, uh and the relief, you know, you could, the, the easy uh, uh, default answer to all that is the 800,000 people on the roads and in the parks, uh, you know, on that November day after we got back from New York. But that right there, I mean, there were kids being taken out of school. There were kids who might have wanted to go to school to that, that day because they really didn't grasp what was going on, but mm-hmm. were told not to because the baseball team won a World Series. Well, by golly, if my baseball team got me a day off school – because they won me a World Series, I'm going to be a baseball fan. Right. You know, that's one thing I'm never going to forget. I will love this team forever just because I got to not have to go to school that day because they won a World Series. Yeah, absolutely. I think every school district declared a snow day that day, too. You know, I got got, got to tell you another funny personal story about that. So we're on the plane flying home from New York, and everybody's pretty tired but still energized. And we're watching on on the Internet on the flight – the school cancellations popping up on the KC Star website, and neither Blue Spring School had canceled schools yet. And you know we know the parades the next day, and Rach is in the back of the plane, and Renee and I were fortunate enough to sit up front. and And Renee says, "Look, if they don't cancel my school, I got to be at work tomorrow." I said, "You're going to the stinking parade, okay? Right. You're coming to the parade. You miss this much. What's one more day?" She says, "Well, what about Rach?" I said, "Rach is going to the parade too." Mm-hmm. Well neither one canceled until like just before we landed and it popped up blue spring school district canceled they were both they were both really relieved i'm like what are you relieved about okay so what you're going to play hooky anyway right so, yeah no, it's, just, it's funny i mean like it, it really like the city just embraced this yeah. like, like something we've never seen before and, and that's why i think these stories about 14 and 15 are great talking to anybody even if you weren't associated with the ball club at the time just talking to the to royals fans or what they remember from those years because of how it really did change their lives and, and you know creative relationships that they never would have had before met people you never would have met before and it's amazing what a winning baseball team can do and how you live it day in and day out versus any other sport and people keep saying well you know when the Chiefs win the Super Bowl I'm like nah, it's not going to be the same at least for me it's not going to be the same and maybe it's because of my love of the game of baseball and and everything that you know just me growing up being a huge baseball fan but nothing is going to top what what we saw in 14 and 15 for me in any level ever again it's going to be interesting. I mean, I hope that it happens because I am a fan. I want to see them have success. I've got friends over there, um, and there's no reason this can't be a championship town, not just to have a championship team. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm curious, you know, when the time comes, uh, what that sea of red will look like. Uh, you know, February, whatever, is a little chillier Cold. than the November 3rd <laughs> day it was. Day, right? It couldn't have been. I mean, God looked down and said, you know what? 800,000 people are going to be outdoors. Let's get it to 60 degrees and make yeah. them comfortable. I mean, it, it was. It couldn't have been better because we weren't sure what we were flying home into. And, you know, we were, we had to walk the route, walk the parade route, which was, I think, a little over five miles. And, and uh, you know, you don't know what to wear. You don't know whether to put sleeves on you. There's no place to put anything. Once you put it on, it's it's mm-hmm. on you. 
And we took a chance and says, you know, we'll probably work up a little bit of a lather walking in this. And sure as heck, we got a little sun. I mean, it was perfect. Couldn't have been better. Couldn't have been a better day. All right. So you, you, you talked about coming back in 2007, which was really, I guess, right after when Dayton Moore got hired, the turning point of the organization where they went from, you know, Allard and moved in Dayton. And you said you wanted to be part of that. But you were also part of the Rockies and the Diamondbacks as expansion teams. How close were the Royals to an expansion team when this regime took over this ball club? Pretty dang close. I mean, it, it was, uh, uh, by my count, and I'm obviously not the baseball operations guy, and some people may be offended by this or what have you, but by my count, we had three baseball players in the organization, Zach Greinke, uh, Alex Gordon, and uh, Billy Butler. I mean, three guys that, that uh, looking back on it now, those were the three you know guys who got us where we needed to be and i i say that because even though zach wasn't here for the winning if it wasn't having zach on the team you don't see lorenzo kane and and alcides escobar and the other deals were made so um you know there were other bit players down in the organization who may have had that cup of coffee if you will but those were the three guys and you know that's that's starting and none had i mean zach was the only one with major league experience uh billy and alex made their debuts in 07 and uh, and they struggled as they should at the outset and then got better as time went on. Um, Colorado, uh, we built through the expansion draft. We really didn't do a great job of uh, – uh, I, I can't say we didn't do a great job of drafting because the first draft pr- produced uh, Craig Council, Quentin McCracken, uh, Roger Bailey, uh, Mark Thompson, guys who saw big leagues, John Burke, guys who saw big league service time. Um, obviously, Council, the big name in that group, mm-hmm. and he was a, he was a later round draft. Um, Arizona's first couple of drafts didn't really turn out too much, but both teams in the expansion draft went for veteran players. So, I mean, Colorado, we ran out Joe Girardi as our catcher, and Andres Galarraga was at first base, and Vinny Castillo at shortstop, and Charlie Hayes at third base, and Dante Bichette in the outfield. And, and we went on, and two years later, signed Larry Walker and got Ellis Burks. And, you know, it, it was a, it was a pretty good ball club for, for expansion, mm-hmm. if you will. And uh, and so, you know, building pitching in Colorado was always the struggle, but we got enough to get into the playoffs in our in our third year. Um, and then in Arizona, when you have Jerry Colangelo as your uh, leader of the ownership group, um, somebody who's had nothing but success in his life running the Phoenix Suns, uh, he doesn't take second place very well, not, much, not to mention fourth place. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we signed... Traded for Matt Williams, signed Jay Bell, and had a decent draft. Had Devon White in the outfield, uh, George Fabregas, our catcher. And then Travis Lee was the one draft pick who everybody thought was going to be a superstar, really never panned out. But he did help us in a trade to Philadelphia. But then after the 98 season, which was our first season, um, he <laughs> Jerry went nuts. I mean, we signed Randy Johnson, Steve Finley, uh, Luis Gonzalez, traded for Luis Gonzalez, um, Todd Stottlemyre. I mean, just like that, boom, we got a baseball team. And then in uh, uh, the middle of the uh, 2000 season, traded for Kurt Schilling. Right. And but we won 100 games in our second season in 1999. That's wow. And uh, I mean, it was it was silly how good this club was. But then lost to the Mets in the uh, in the first round. Todd Pratt hit a walk off home run off Matt Manti, and boom, that was that uh, season over. Right. And then 2000, uh, the team didn't perform well under Buck. Uh, because it went from kind of Buck Showalter's dream team, which was a very young team that he could manage, to probably Buck Showalter's worst nightmare, which was 
a bunch of veteran players who had played for other managers and had their way of doing things and really couldn't be told how to you know yeah how to do things on and off the field and they didn't perform well under that kind of pressure in 2000 and so Bob Brenly was brought in to manage the club going into 2001 and I'll never forget BB's first meeting um, BB was a pretty laid back guy is there anybody who doesn't have a nickname in baseball no no I could go I could go forever on it but Bob was uh you're talking to Swanee for God's I, sake. I, I know. Like, again, like we, we always kind of joke. Like, we just throw out names every once in a while in a commercial break. What would the baseball equivalent would be for this yeah. one? Like, yeah. for, for like Josh always goes. I would call him Joshy, and he would look at me. And go, well, I guess you would be Bobby then. But now you got BB for Bob Brenly. Yeah, like, BB. Yeah, it's, it's just, just it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, Chill, RJ, Gonzo. I mean, where do you want to go, Finn? What's Ned's nickname? Um, I don't think he would have one. Honest yeah, to goodness, honest, I yeah. don't think. What he about had. Dayton? You know, in in Ned's case, his old friends when they would come to see him nedgar nedgar that that's something I mean, which i think is his given name you well, know it's edgar right edgar yeah. yeah so they'd call him nedgar yeah and uh and so that so i, I have heard him called that by his his click which right. is a very small click as oh, you God. all know <laughs> but uh but anyway bob bob had this meeting uh first day of spring training he had this notebook in his hand which was buck's uh rule book uh and, and it had everything in a way of life uh it had everything and Bob took it, and these were your rules last year, and he threw it in the garbage. And he pulled out a cocktail napkin out of his pocket and unfolded it like he'd just written on it last night in a bar in Tucson. And he uh, he said, here are my rules. Be on time. Um, bust your ass every time you're out there on the field. And if you can find anything to do in this town after 12 o'clock, call me and the coaches. We'll come meet you. <laughs> and that was it. Go out and win a World Series. Okay, and they did. You know, so it just took it. It pulled all the reins back. It just said, "Go play baseball." That's crazy because there will be people that will argue with me all the time that a manager doesn't make a difference. And you hear baseball guys, "Well, a manager makes a difference." Maybe ten games a year. I go, "It's not about the X's and O's at all with these managers. It's about how you manage people." I mean, all about the people. And and I thought, you know, obviously we'll get more into Ned, but the way that he managed those guys in fourteen and fifteen, and and really changed himself as a person to kind of be more relatable to the guys instead of making the guys more relatable to him, I think that helped things with, with this organization. He became more trusting of people. He became more trusting of me. He came, became more trusting even of the media, mm-hmm. um, though it didn't always show, but I can tell you he did. Um, and he became more trusting of those guys in that clubhouse. And he didn't feel like he had to constantly stand over them and watch them and push them. Um, when a conversation, I mean, I was in that hallway many a time, and I'll never name names, but when a player was summoned Mm -hmm. over something that wasn't liked in the fourth inning. And you would always see a mistake be made on the field, and you might see the TV camera shoot Ned sitting there with his arms folded in the dugout and not flinch. And you'd wonder, you know, is he going to react to that? But he's not going to react to it on camera. He's not going to go up in the tunnel. He's not going to – it's not an immediate thing. But, boy, I'll tell you, after games, there were guys that got summoned in. And guys of names that you know very well. And it was between him and them. And if it was a Latin player, you know, we'd have a Latin coach in there to, to translate and make sure he understood what he was being hollered at for. Right. And then back to the clubhouse. But the thing about Ned, and this is kind of like uh, parenting, if you will. Once that was over with, it was done. It was done. You know, I mean, he, he'd see you the next day in the clubhouse and – Right back at you, you know, hey, good, you know, let's go get him tonight and all this. And and every player knew that. 
you know, he wasn't on probation. He wasn't another mistake away from, you know, being on I-29. It's just not the way it operated. And, uh, and, and the fact that he started trusting these guys and he still managed them, um, I, I think was a complete change in the organization. When did you really see that change in Ned? Was it after the wild card game or did he start doing those things beforehand? I think, uh, I think toward the end of the 14th season was when I saw and felt more of a trust with his coaching staff. He started believing, you know, that they were there to help him. Not that he ever doubted they were there to help him, but Ned Ned was, you know, a, a, you know, a sole leader, if you will. I mean, he he wanted to run by Ned's rules, mm-hmm. and you know, he had to. And, and you know, to his defense and any manager's defense, um, when something doesn't go right. It's not that coach that's going to answer for it. It's Ned that's going to answer for it. So Ned took that to heart. But I, I saw him start to open up more with his coaching staff, take more input from the guys who were there next to him. And that was one of the first signs where I, I noticed Ned Yost you know, letting go of the reins a little bit and giving credit where credit was due and giving uh, knowledge and letting their knowledge help the t- club be better. Um, but it will always, for me, from a personality standpoint, uh, from my relationship with him, and and more importantly, the media's relationship with him. And I, I, I say that because the one thing I preach to Ned, I've already had this conversation with Mike Matheny, and he's very well aware, and I say it to our players in the organization all the time. You and all of your brotherhood here in Kansas City as members of the media, you might have media as your tag, but who you really are, for if you had a business card, would be the conduit between our organization and our fan base. That, that's what you guys are. And that's the hardest thing to explain to guys when they may not like something you said on the radio or something Sam wrote in the paper or something Vahe may have written in the paper or what have you. They may not like it. It may have had a tone to it that they personally didn't like because it had something to do with their act. And so they become a little stubborn with the media because they feel like they've been burned once. And that's the wrong direction to go because I want our fan base to be able to know who these guys are. And backtrack to 2014, when I saw Ned change in Anaheim that day of that first press conference, I knew he finally grasped the fact that he wasn't talking to cameras and or people in the audience. He was talking to that 40,000 people and all the others who couldn't get tickets that night in Kauffman Stadium. And and it really resonated with me that he gets it now and, and he's going to be better at this. And he was better at it. And and he, he changed so much that he went from somebody that was despised by a lot of fans to a, a, a fan base that was crashing a hot dog website in California because everybody wanted to order Casper's hot dogs because Ned talked about him on the show. Like, that's the transformation that Ned Yost went through here in Kansas City from a guy that really nobody cared to have anything to do with to a guy that was crashing websites for hot dogs right. because everybody wanted the same hot dog that Ned liked. Well, Ned, you know, Ned, and you know this as well as anybody, Ned is very comfortable with the world knowing he's got basically five friends. Mm-hmm in his life, you know, and they all live within a 20 mile radius of his home. And that's only like three homes because I've been down there now and I know how much space there is down there. Right. Um, but, and he likes to just have that many people really, really know him and, uh, for him to open up and, you know, the show he did with you and for him to not just talk about baseball and talk about life in general. And, you know, you can't talk about Ned Yost without talking about the accident. Right. 
And two years ago today, and we're taping this on the 14th of November, two years ago today, we had him on after that accident and found out, wow, that was really a lot more serious than anybody yeah, he thought. Didn't, he didn't sprain a toe or twist no. an ankle when he landed. Yeah, I mean, he flat shattered his pelvis. And, and uh, you know, to hear the stories firsthand and to meet the surgical team firsthand and you know, doctor. You know, doctors. Doctors aren't going to give away too many secrets, and and to meet the lead surgeon, and have her say, "We battled our butts off not to lose this guy," and you know, when he was put on the table in the ER, or in the OR rather, and the the doctors recognized him and said, "This is Ned Yost. We can't let him die on our watch." You know, you hear stuff like that, and you're like, "Okay, I mean, this is." And and when I talked to him, you know, Ned never. Ned had this Superman invincible belief, you know, that he was never going to get hurt, never be touched. And when I talked to him on the phone shortly after the accident, he said, your old pal was in trouble. And to hear him admit that to me is like the admission that you'd never think Ned Yost would say. And uh, and, and that changed him. But that would, ch- you know, it's not that that's any miracle that it changed Ned Yost. It would change any human being because you're not human if it didn't. Mm-hmm. But it, it made him whatever lack of respect for life he may have had or or other people or whatever, and I'm not saying that he did, but you, he had a rough side to him. Well, that opened up a little bit too because he realized, you know, this really is, we're only out here for a certain amount of time. And uh, if I was a cat, eight of them are gone. And, you know, I got one to go now, so let's let's not screw this up. And and it, it was something that, that changed him and changed a lot of us. I mean, it... it, uh, it it brought a lot of us to, to realizing that he's actually mortal, you know, was was kind of hard for us to accept at times because yeah. he never was. Well, we, we, we always joke and still do. I think we even joked about it today on the show, to be honest with you, about when he had the gallbladder or the spleen out in spring training and he, yeah. and he left after practice, was back the next day. We're like, yeah, that, wa- that's just Ned. Like, he just ripped it out himself and threw it on the ground and kept going. I walked in his office, so he goes home sick uh, the day before and, and – uh, I asked our trainer about it, and he says, well, he's going to have his gallbladder taken out. And I'm thinking, so who's going to run practice the next day? He said, you better check with the bench coach. So I went in and talked, and, and I think it was Walk at the time, and uh, he's got the schedule laid out and everything. And the next morning I come walking in, and Ned's at his desk. <laughs> I, I mean, uh, I'll just tell you exact words that came out. What the hell are you doing here? And he goes, what? And I go, you had your gallbladder taken out. You say, so? So he says, what am I going to do? He says, sit in a hospital room, sit in my hotel room, watch TV. Come on. Who are you kidding? I can't drink coffee. I, you know, I can't do any of that right now, but that doesn't mean I can't get in a golf cart and go out and watch practice. You win. I, I'm out. You mm-hmm. know, that's it. Okay, I'll be back in a little while. I said, you want to cancel the media stuff? He goes, why? Now, okay, let's just take the S. And let's just show the media the big S on your chest, you know, when they come walking in this morning then, okay? Right. And he says, don't be a wise guy. So well, I'm just, you know, it just kind of blew my mind. But uh, it was just one of those funny days. And and just to watch him recover from that, like, in no time. Yeah. I mean, no time. And so to hear that he was, you know, bedridden for six weeks, you're like, okay, this, this is serious. Sure, <laughs> you know? yeah. Because when he first fell out of the tree, we all had kind of the same reaction. And I sent him a text just to hey, make sure everything's okay. I figured Ned was fine because the, the whole gallbladder story is always in our minds with how tough this guy was. And I don't know that I heard back from him right away or anything like that. And and they're like, oh, all right, I guess he's fine. It's Ned. Nothing bothers that yeah. guy. Nothing phases that guy. And then to hear like what happened, you're like, 
oh my god like yeah. like this was really really serious this is nothing to be joking about and it seemed like it gave him a new appreciation for life it, it did no no question about it it uh it absolutely did it made him uh you know he he's such a phenomenal dad and phenomenal grandfather it's it's parts of his life that a lot of people don't see and know and i get to see him interact with his grandkids and and just the thought that i think even if it crossed his mind while he was laying on that table or laying in that chair that he wouldn't be able to watch his grandkids grow and things like that. I, I think it just changed him to, to no end. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just a completely different individual, if you will. You mentioned you wanted to come here in 2007 because you believed in some of the people that took over the organization. I would imagine it was Dayton Moore for you. What what led you to want to believe in Dayton and work for Dayton? Why, why was that so important for you? Well, you know, backtrack to say 2005, 2006, 2007, we're, or 2006, we're – in Arizona, things aren't going particularly well. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we fired Bob Brenly, uh, lost 111 games in 2004, uh, came very, very close to having Alex Gordon as an Arizona Diamondback. We took Justin Upton instead, but mm-hmm. it, literally the coin went up in the air that morning as to which way they were going to go, but they took Upton. Really? And, uh, and, and I didn't know when this club was going to recover. So you do this. Let's backtrack to why I do this. I do this because I'm a competitor too, but I can't play the game. But that doesn't mean I don't want to win. That doesn't mean I don't want to work my butt off all day long and then at 7 o'clock beat whoever my brethren is on the other side of the aisle in the press box and, and get a W. Um, and that wasn't going to happen again for a while in Arizona. And I had kind of put my shingle out a little bit uh, and word got to Chicago about that. And I got a call a week before Christmas, right after the winter meetings, if I wanted to come to Chicago and interview with the Whites or with the Cubs. John McDonough was the president of the Cubs at the time, and and uh, if I didn't have Bob, if I didn't have a seven-year-old child at that time, I'd probably still be working for the Cubs right now, or be dead because I moved to Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> one of two, but. Uh, but he kept telling me day games, you know, even though we got the lights and everything, we still play an abundance of day games. And uh, and I, 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 it wasn't appealing to me from that aspect because I would have had to live about an hour out of town, which means I would have been stuck in normal workday traffic, and that wouldn't have been any fun. And I wasn't going to try to raise Rachel in a uh, more urban atmosphere, if you will, uh, downtown, midtown Chicago. Um, but John did float one line during the inf- in- interview, which – has always stuck with me. It was, look, somebody's going to be the PR guy when this team breaks the curse. Might as well be you. And I'm like, oh, man, to think being Wrigley Field when this curse is broken. Wow. You know, how cool is that? Mm-hmm. And But I turned him down. Well, during that process, word had gotten to Kevin Ulick here in Kansas City. He was looking to fill Dave Woody's position. And David reached out to me a couple of times as well, and I thank him for that, uh, that he was contemplating leaving. And uh, so Kevin reached out, and I was actually in a line to buy gift cards for my staff at a uh, Best Buy, and my phone rang. It was Kevin. I took the call. He says, you got a minute to talk? I said, can I buy these gift cards? I'll call you from the car. Okay, good. So I called him back. He says, hey, we're looking to fill the VP of Communications and Broadcasting job here in Kansas City. Um, would you be interested? Uh, yeah, absolutely, I'd be interested. I mean, he knew I was from here. Um, can I have a little time? He goes, yeah, sure, take what you need. And I said, okay. So I I did a quick search and you know looked up Dayton Moore. 
Um, I didn't know much about didn't him. Didn't know much about him at all, really. I'd heard, I'd heard his name a couple times because I think he'd interviewed with the Red Sox, and uh, you know his name was out there as one of those up-and-coming GM types. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had some friends in Atlanta, uh, some people I'd actually worked with in Colorado and in Kansas City many, many moons ago. Uh, that went with John Sherholtz when he went to Atlanta. So I called him and I said, hey, d- tell me a little bit about Dane Moore. And then, you know, their inquisitiveness back, I, you, it's like a- answer a question with a question, why ask him? <laughs> I said, well, there's, uh, I might have a chance to go to work in Kansas City and I, I just wanted to see what I'm getting into. You mean you might have a chance to work with Dayton? Oh, yeah. Go. Take it. Jump on it. You got to go. Hey, you're going to love the guy. I mean, he's one of the greatest people you ever want to meet, God-fearing. Um, family man, um, knows his stuff. Uh, he's gonna and he's gonna get done what he wants to get done. Okay, and check that box. So I called Kevin back the next day and I said, "When would you want me to come in for an interview?" He goes, "You want the job? It's yours." I'm like, well, okay. Now I got to check with the boss, you know. So I t- talked to Renee because we had left Colorado when we got married and moved to Arizona, and I went from. 500 some odd miles to my in-laws to five miles from my in-laws down in Arizona. So mm-hmm. had to make that decision. And they, Renee was like, she was ready. So we were just ready for a new startup as a family too. And so we took it and that was that. And then, and then the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah. Huh? Why did you believe Dayton would eventually get it done? Because you know, when you got here in 2000, it was not good. It no, was not, it was not was good better. at all. It was, it was awful with the, with where the franchise was. The fan base was not happy. You know, why did you believe in Dayton more? Um, I can point to a day where a night actually in Nashville, Tennessee, at the winter meetings, where I saw a side of Dayton more that I knew he knew what was up, but he knew he had to take some side roads to get there, if this makes sense. When I tell you the story, it'll make more sense. Okay. Um, I had Jose Guillen, as probably every PR guy can sit here and say they had Jose Guillen at one time in their career. I had him in Arizona. And uh, he he's that guy who, when it starts right off, he comes in as a 100% gentleman. Not that he's a terrible human being, because uh, he's not. Uh, he does have a heart of gold, um, and I saw that side of him. But if it's not his day or he's not in the mood, um, he can be a distraction. And Dayton called me in to his suite in Nashville and said, we're going to sign Jose again. And as the good PR guy, I said, okay. And he goes, you've had him before, right? And I said, yeah. He says, tell me about him. I said, well, I said, he, he can be a handful sometimes, but, uh, you know, it just depends on if he can, if he can fit. He goes, look, I know he's going to be a handful, and I appreciate you being honest with me. But I need somebody. I need a bat. He says, I've got to, we're trying to build this thing from underneath to the top. But I also have to put fannies in the seats at Kauffman Stadium. And I have to have somebody who can bat around Gordon and Butler in that lineup. Somebody who can get them pitches to hit and somebody who can drive them home. And right now, with the way the market is, this is the guy we got to have. And I just feel like it's a need we have to fulfill. I said, Dayton, you got to do what's best for the team. You don't make a move because of the PR side of it. I said, we'll we'll balance it and do whatever we can to to react to it and and handle it. Mm-hmm. He says, okay. He says, that's all I wanted to hear from me. So good. And that was when I knew that he knew it might not be the greatest sign in Royals history, 
but it's something we had to do right then because he cared that much about what product he was running out on the field in Kauffman Stadium, while at the same time all of his workers below, and I'm talking about his scouting staff and everybody associated with the Baseball Operations Department, were trying to find the Eric Hosmers, the Greg Hollands, the, you can go down the whole list, you know who they are, and find those guys who are going to come through the system and take this club to a championship level. And so he cared that much about what we were trying to do on a big league side. You saw in recent years what other clubs, they thumbed their nose at their fan base. Oh, yeah. And they said, look, we're going to lose 100 games right before your very eyes, and we're going to suck doing it, and you're not going to like half the players on the field, and you're going to just have to deal with it, and then we'll make it up to you later. And they, you know, they've been able to do that through the rules of baseball and how it's 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 set up. Mm-hmm. But Dayton tried his best to make sure that there was something out there on that field for people to enjoy when they came to Kauffman Stadium those nights in the summer during those seven, oh eight, oh nine, ten, as as we built this thing. And then when the time was right, those kids came up, and th- as we say, the rest is history. Yeah. Did you ever have that moment of going, "Oh boy, this isn't going to work"? Like, did you ever have that moment deep into this thing where you thought, "Uh oh, we're in trouble"? I never did. I never did because uh, they let me go to the draft in uh, 2007 when we, uh, or in 2008 rather, when we took uh, Mustakas, and uh, then the the Hosmer draft, and I, I saw internally just how much effort was being put into these drafts and how much thought was put into the signings and and i just i I, can i sit here and look you right in the eye and say that i think we'd go to the world series in 14 and 15 back-to-back years and win one no because you can't ask the seattle Seattle mariners their thoughts on that Mm -hmm. they haven't been you know ask the tigers about winning once since 84 right i mean it's so funny the criticisms that you get in your own hometown but I look around and watch other clubs, and, hey, you know what? It's not that easy. So you just can't build it and say, we're going to win it. It takes a lot of things to go right. And for those two years, a lot of things went right. You know, it, it, it's crazy with that because you, you look at a market the size of Kansas City. Find me another one that's been to back-to-back World Series since basically the, the recreation of baseball after the strike. It just doesn't happen. Markets this size aren't supposed to go to, first of all, the World Series, let alone back-to-back World Series, Right. right? And so Jen and I were down in Mexico celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary in April of 18, right? 2018. Yeah, that would have been 10 years. And I had Royals cap on or whatever on the beach, and this guy had a Tigers cap on. And we started talking, and he said to me, he goes, man, what you guys were able to do, I hope you realize how special it was. He goes, we had all these years with these great teams and didn't do crap, and you guys were able to get there and actually win the World Series, man. He goes, that that was pretty awesome for you all. And I'm like, yeah, that puts it into perspective. When you have fans from other organizations that are supposed to be your rivals going, we're jealous of you guys because yeah. we had so many good teams and we're never able to realize that, you know? Yeah, it takes, you know, it takes, ask Houston about, you know, 15 it takes that mm-hmm. one bad hop it takes that one silly must play have the whistle on the wrong pitch or something <laughs> I'm, I'm not going down that road i thought about that road on the drive in today and i'm gonna i'm gonna just not go down that road but it, it it takes that one hop that one play that one whatever that that can flip an entire series mm-hmm. and and uh you know who's going to explain to the world 30 years from now when you pick up your history books and now sees escobar sitting there at the top of the order every night that we were successful, and then they pull up his baseball card and see the numbers on it and go, really? Mm-hmm. This guy led off for a world championship team? And hit it inside the park. Over. did a phenomenal <laughs> job doing it. Thank you very much. Yeah. 
I mean, it's just, it just takes certain breaks and certain things to go your way, but, uh, and belief yeah. and, and belief. And, and that goes back to your original question about my belief in Dayton and this organization. I, um, it's not the Gatorade we're drinking there. It's not the water we're drinking there. It's, it's not, it's just when you work day in and day out with this group of people, there's a trust and a belief that they're going to get it right. And that's why, you know, I, I by by legal rules, if you read all the mail I get from uh, Medicare and everything like that, I'm entitled to walk away right now and enjoy what's left of my time on earth. But that competitive burn is in my belly as bad as it's ever been. And to spend the couple of days I spent with Mike Matheny, I spent more time than now with him, but those two days around his hiring and then coming to your station and going mm-hmm. all over town with him and being in a car with him all day, all that did was just ignite the fire even more. And I want to, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to do this, but right now I I don't see me walking away anytime particularly soon because the fire's lit again. You still get the 25-cent coffee at McDonald's, though. You're taking advantage of these senior discounts, aren't you? I wish I was a coffee drinker. Oh, yeah, God, no. you got to take advantage of this stuff. <laughs> you got to take advantage of the AARP stuff. Uh, by the time this runs and, and hits the, uh, the the podcast website, webs, airwaves, whatever you want to call it, the Glass family will no longer be the owners of this organization. Define their ownership of the Royals. They were, uh, <clears throat> for me, they were terrific suitors of this club. Um, I know they they didn't do it the way Kansas City fans wished it had been done, like in, in a in a snap-your-finger mode. Uh, were they always here? Was Mr. Glass always in town? No, he wasn't. But what they did, and, and I'll tell you what I said long before Mr. Glass admitted this in a story to Sam Mellinger, but it was how I felt. And when people asked me about why 2006 and 2007 happened, um, I just was able to put things together in my mind as I watched this organization change. And my theory was, and he backed my theory up with an interview with Sam, was that when they got control of this organization in 2000, there were a ton of people in this organization that were part of it when they were winners in the 80s. And that's a good thing. They knew what it was like to win. And, you know, this organization was winning right up to the strike in 94. This organization was a competitive organization. And when they got control of the club, they said, okay, these people have won. Let's support them. Let's give them what they need. And let's, you know, let's get this thing back on track. And it just didn't happen. You know, I don't, I don't, and I can't speak for why I wasn't here, but it didn't happen. And some epiphany, something happened in, I'll say January of 2006, not that I have the date right, but uh, it definitely happened in May of 2006 when they just decided, you know what, uh, we're going to change some things and we're going to get a new general manager in here. And obviously Dayton in the interview process told them, this is what I'm going to have to have to be successful. We're going to have to expand our operation in baseball ops. We're going to have to expand where we go. We're going to have to have a presence in Latin America. We're going to have to have a presence specifically in the Dominican Republic. And we're going to have to work from from the bottom and grow it up. And they said, okay, you're the guy. And then from the business side, they went out and sought and found, uh, uh, got Kevin Ulick. And Kevin was able to build the business side. And a lot of good people taken out of the organization for a lot of good people who were more up to date with how the baseball was being operated is probably the best way I can put it. And 
they they supported from the moment I was I got here in January 2007. You'll, you'll hear this so many times from people talking about Mr. Glass. Um, every conversation I ever had with him ended with, you tell me if there's anything you need, if there's anything I can do for you, which is like an open-ended invitation if you really feel like there's something you desperately need. Well, they allowed me to have my say in the, uh, in the renovations. You know, we got some wishes on the checklist that we wanted to make this, you know, this up-to-date stadium, uh, media-friendly, fan-friendly, what have you. Um, they just allowed us to do our jobs. Uh, Dayton was able to make deals. Dayton was, Dayton was able to trade Zach Greinke. Dayton was, a, Dayton was able to sign Zach Greinke. You know, Dayton was able to do some things uh, that maybe the previous regime wasn't allowed to do or wasn't asking to do. Mm-hmm. You often ask that question, you know, did, did they not ask the questions that Dayton's asking? I don't know. I wasn't here. But I do know that so much changed because the glasses just let us do our jobs. Did they want to be front people? Did they want to be out there in the media? No. They said, Dayton, you handle the baseball questions. Kevin, you handle the business questions. Swanee, you take care of all that PR stuff, and if, if you need quotes or something from me or you need our support, let me know. But when you have questions, answer them knowledgeably and, and don't hold back. And and that's how we ran the operation, and, and it ran very, very well. Um, they were very competitive people. David Glass is, is one of the most competitive people I've ever met in my life, and I worked with Jerry Colangelo. And he's right up there with him. He hated losing. That day we came out to the ballpark the morning after we lost Game Seven of the uh, fourteen World Series, and you know we we wanted to uh, organizationally we wanted to let the fans have one final chance to see their guys, and unfortunately the guys weren't really in the mood to be there mm-hmm. that day because they had just lost Game Seven of the World Series, and I hope people understood that. But one person I know who didn't want to be there that day was Mr. Glass, and I was standing next to him in the dugout. And I said, you doing okay? He says, I'm far from okay. He says, I'm far from okay. I want to get my hands on that trophy that's got all the flags on it. And he says, we're going to get that thing. And I says, yes, sir, we will. And, boy, from that moment on, I said, 2015, let's hurry up and get started. And then when I got to camp in 15 and realized that the players had the same mindset that the owner had, nothing was going to stop this club. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy. We always say that if 14 didn't happen, 15 probably doesn't happen. Like, exactly. Like, we left Kauffman Stadium that night. Hey, that was great. That was fun. That was awesome, man. But everybody else left that night going, we're going to win in 15. And, like, the groundwork was laid. Like, you didn't realize that until almost a year later that they said that night, hey, we're winning this thing next year. Yeah, absolutely. There was there was a, there was a mindset within the organization that, uh, uh, okay, we came that close. Let's, let's don't let this slip away this time. So, new owner, John Sherman, what do you expect? What are the expectations? I, I, I can't speak on expectations yet because I really don't know his game plan, but um, I, I've had several meetings with him. I like the man a lot. He's, he's, uh, he's a local guy, and I think you're going to see a little more ownership visibility um, than you did with the Glass family because he is local. Um, I think he'll, uh, he'll be open to, to talking. Um, I don't know how he's going to operate the business quite yet. I think that's for him to to say when uh, when the time comes, once he gets control of the club. Um, but I know he's competitive. I know he wants to win. I know he's uh, uh, he likes Dayton. Um, he likes the direction Dayton's got this thing pointed at again. He likes what he's seen in our farm system and what he's heard about it. And uh, and he really liked Mike Matheny. And uh, we wouldn't have been able to do that higher without his blessing. So. Um, I see this organization again, just pointing in the right direction, and and you know he's he's going to have some uh, 
uh, partners in the ownership too, and they're all Kansas Cityans, and they're all competitive Kansas Cityans. And uh, I, I think not knowing where all these folks were on uh, that day in November of 2015, um, I think they enjoyed it enough to realize that they could be part of this now, mm-hmm. and anything they can do to help this team win again, uh, they're going to be all in. All right, let me let me throw some kind of rapid fire questions at you. Taking the Royals out of the equation, you've had an opportunity to do so much. You work with Keith Jackson. You've been the Final Four Super Bowls. What's the best sporting event you've ever been to in person? I, I could never nail it down to one. Um, and I'll I'll take my baseball stuff out of it because it's yeah. way too easy to talk about a World Series title. Um, to be at the Flutie game, uh, you know, be working that game with Pat Hayden and and Brent Musburger in the Orange Bowl. When he threw that pass, uh, uh, was uh, it was exciting. I mean, I had a job to do, but man, you you knew right then what you just witnessed. Uh, my first Final Four was in the Superdome in New Orleans, and uh, in fact, of my first four Final Fours, three of them were just instant classics. Uh, Michael Jordan hitting the shot in the Superdome to beat uh, uh, Georgetown, and then Fred Brown throwing the ball away uh, when just a North Carolina player. Clark called for it. Yeah, James Worthy called for it, and he got it. Yeah. He said, "Oh, you want it? Okay, here." And there, there goes the Final Four. Um, then the following year, I was in uh, Albuquerque when uh, Jim Balvano won his national championship with North Carolina State, and people were jumping over our table. I'm sitting there with uh, Gary Bender and, and Billy Packer, and people are literally stepping on our table to get out on the court, and we're just kind of covering our stuff up for our lives. Yeah. Um, and then the following year, I was in Seattle when I believe Georgetown finally won its, uh, or yeah, Georgetown won its title in '84. And then '85, I was in uh, Lexington uh, with Brent and Billy Packer when uh, uh, Villanova shocked Georgetown, just absolutely shocked them. So uh, to be in in those events, uh, uh, I was at the Super Bowl game in Tampa when uh, the Raiders just went off that day. Uh, I did several Super Bowls, but that one, that one for some reason stood out. Um, How have you ended up at every sporting event that is like one of the most famous sporting events in American history? I honestly, I'd ask myself the same question. It's, 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 I mean, you just right there, what you just said, you talked about some of the most famous sporting, like if people are ranking the top 10 sports moments of all time, you've literally like witnessed all of these in person. From a center court seat on the floor. Yeah. Or a 50 yard line seat in the press box. It's amazing. And, and it all goes back to a phone call I got. In 1977, I was in a meeting in the sports information office at the University of Kansas and uh, getting ready to start the football season at KU. And the secretary came into Don Baker's office, who was the SID at the time, and handed Don a note and says, we'll take it to him. And it was one of those pink message sheets that says, please call Keith Jackson when you have a moment. I'm like, Keith Jackson? Well, okay. So Don says, go go, go call. Go place the call. I said, okay. So I called Keith, and I get that, hello, you know, on the other end of the phone. And I go, Keith, this is Mike Swanson. He goes, I thought you were in a meeting. Should you not be in this meeting? And I said, well, the guy having the meeting told me to go ahead and call you. He says, I don't ever want to take you away from work. I said, "Uh, well, I said, you want me to call you back? He said, well, now that I got you, he says, "Uh, uh, my stats guy left me. My football stats guy left me, and I'm looking for a stats guy. And I said, really? And he goes, yeah. He says, "Uh, a week from... Saturday, we're in Pittsburgh doing Notre Dame Pitt. Uh, Tony Dorsett against Joe Montana. Uh, you want to be a part of it? And I said, well, what's, what, what are the rules? He says, I'll, we'll pay $100 a week, uh, rent you a car, put you up in a hotel, fly you in, and do the game. 
and you get per diem. I said, okay, yeah, I'll do it. And I later came to find out, and I should have remembered this, but in 1976, I was interning with the Royals, and uh, Keith and Jerry Klein, who was the researcher for Keith, came to Kansas City. Now, Bob, you got to remember, this is four computers. So we got just stacks of record books and media guides and stuff, and Keith and I and Jerry are locked in a conference room at Old Royal Stadium, and we're looking up stuff for the playoffs that are going to be played between the Royals and the Yankees. And I'm just making thousands of notes and thumbing books and looking stuff up and everything. And I guess Keith was impressed with my ability to look up stats. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had done a bunch of stats work in Kansas City. I'd been on the Kings stats crew. I got called Stevie Wonder once by Nate Archibald. Um because <laughs> he, he thought I missed an assist. He had a streak of <laughs> double-doubles going of, of points and assists. Yeah. And he came out in Old Municipal Auditorium. He came out with a stat sheet. He says, where's Stevie Wonder? And I go, what are you talking about? He says, who had assists tonight? I said, I did. He says, you got me with nine assists. I had 12 assists. I said, tiny, I only had you with nine. I had 12. He, rah, 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 you know, like that. And he walked out, and then he forgot about it. But, yeah. but anyway, uh I was on that stats crew, so Keith calls and asked me to do it. And then, as luck would have it, uh, later that year, the stats guy for Monday Night Football missed a few games, so they asked me to go in and work with Howard and uh, Dandy Don and uh, and Frank. Frank was the play-by-play guy, and that was a trip. But I did five games that year, and then uh, I think five or six games each of the following four years. And uh, it, that was unbelievable hanging out with those guys. And we had some phenomenal games there. And then, uh, you know, working with Keith, you're going to get the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the biggest moments that I had in football uh, never made air, but it ended up making history. Uh, we were at the Gator Bowl, and uh, a guy named Charlie Bauman intercepted a pass for Clemson. And uh, he did it right in front of the Ohio State bench. And Woody Hayes picked him off off the ground and, after he intercepted the pass and punched him. Yeah. And I saw him throw the punch. But this was before what they call as an Elvis in a TV truck where they can immediately flash back to that point. And we went to commercial, and I said to Keith and Frank Burroughs, I said, I'm pretty sure Coach Hayes punched that player. And Keith gets on to talk back to the truck. He says, hey, you guys got video of that last play. I said, why? I says, Swanee says that, uh, that Woody Hayes punched the player. And they they couldn't find the video. They couldn't track it. And they couldn't get the clean shot that that we have ultimately saw on YouTube and everything when the whole replay of the game came out. And Keith wouldn't go on the air and say it. And he caught a lot of crap for it. And the next day we flew to New Orleans for the Sugar Bowl, and Keith went on uh, one of the morning shows. And he said, my stats guy, Mike Swanson, told me he saw the punch. But as much as I love him and love the work that he does, um, I couldn't take his word because this is this is going to cost a legend a job, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't take his word. But then I woke up this morning, I saw a picture of it in the paper. I've obviously seen the video now, and I know that it happened. But I apologize. I'm never going to say anything on the air that I didn't physically see, especially when it's something of this nature. And so I was there for that too. So it was just one of those are you sure you weren't the John three sixteen guy that was going around? <laughs> like all these things? It's just you, you get aligned. I mean, I, I got to work with Keith, and I was good at that. And then I got to work with the Money Night Crew, and I was good with that. And then CBS was taking over college football, or a lot of the college football, 
and the taking over college basketball. And Terry O'Neill jumped from ABC to CBS. He was the lead producer. He called me and says, how would you like to work for us over here? And I had to call Keith, and I said, Keith, I've been offered the football and basketball uh, stats jobs with CBS. I'll be doing you know, 50, 60 games a year. And he goes, well, you got to go. And I said, Keith, I don't, I don't want to leave you, though. And he says, look, if you don't take the job, I'm going to fire you. He says, you got to look out for yourself. You know, this is not about you and me and everything. We'll always be friends, but you, you, you have to take this job. And this is a guy who had me out to his house for Thanksgiving, a guy who had me out to LA Country Club to play golf. I mean, this was like a stepdad to me. Mm-hmm. And I had a great dad, but um, telling me that go. And so I took it. And I worked with Gary Bender and uh, uh, Pat Hayden over at CBS. And then uh, I got the basketball gig. And then as, as, you know, if you want to say I got a horseshoe up my butt or whatever, uh, during the playoffs of uh, 82. Um, John, you weren't at the catch game, were you? No, I oh. wasn't. I missed it by one. <laughs> um, John Madden was not getting along with uh, stats people, in general, with people in the booth. Mm-hmm. John, is, as we all know, is, is a very defined individual. He doesn't like a lot of clutter he doesn't like people to touch him he's just that person he doesn't like people on an elevator with him he won't fly in a plane you know i mean mm-hmm. he wanted his own bus and guys who do what i did in stats and still do sometimes have this bad habit of you know getting starstruck or tapping a guy on the shoulder and beating him on the shoulder because they think they've got that stat that he's got to read and i have this one rule with any announcer to this day if i'm doing stats i'm going to hand you a card incessantly I'm going to tell you something. It's not going to be stupid. It's going to have something to do with what's going on. But if you don't want to feel like you can get it fit in, don't. you're not hurting my feelings. Don't shove it in for my sake. I'll throw it away. We'll do something later. And so the producer for uh, Bob Fishman, not Bob Fishman, uh, Bob Stenner, the producer for NFL for CBS, called me out of the blue, cold called me and said, hey, I know you're working in Ann Arbor on Saturday. Can you work on Sunday in Philadelphia, uh, I've got the Giants-Eagles playoff game, and it's with John and Pat Summerall. John's having a hell of a time. I said, sure, yeah, if I can get there, I'll, I'll be there. So I went in, did the game, and got my car and left. You know, Pat said thank you, and that was that. And then on Monday, I get I get home, and on a Monday, I get a phone call from Pat Summerall saying, hey, would you mind working uh, the Super Bowl with us in uh, Detroit in Pontiac? Um, we'd like to have you come along. John really loved you, and we'd like to have you. So uh, I went and worked with him, and the next thing I knew, I was on their crew the following fall. So now I'm working Saturday college football, Sunday NFL football, and then basketball comes around, and I'm working basketball. I'm doing NBA with Brent Musburger and Kevin Lockery. And then I had my summers free and played golf all the time, and then I screwed it all up by getting back into baseball. Getting back into baseball. <laughs> so Who, so is, is Keith the best announcer you've ever been around? He's with. he's right there at the top, but man, that's a that's a hard one for me to answer because uh, I was with Jim Nance for a few years, and and he's the thing about Jim is he's a great announcer. Take that times ten to the person that he is. He's one of the greatest humans I've ever been around. Uh, but Keith, Keith, for all his crustiness and and his old school and his his, um, I mean, he was he was that guy that you just respected the hell out of. Tell you one more funny Keith story, which I tell this one on myself. We did uh, a game in Athens, Georgia. It was Herschel Walker against uh, 
um, George Rogers. Uh, Herschel was a freshman. George was a senior. George was going to win the Heisman more than likely. Mm-hmm. And uh, South Carolina, some running back, running back for South Carolina goes for uh, 68 yards for a touchdown. And I'm I, l- let me preface this. I was out all night the night before in Athens. Okay. okay. So yeah. I, I wasn't at my best. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you do some of your best work after nights like that because you're so locked in. Right, you can't right, screw yeah. up. So I write down like 11, 165 on a card, and I hand it to Keith. And uh, Keith takes the card and throws it out the window. And I'm like, well, what just happened? And then I realize, oh, my God, that's a guy named West. That's Ed West or whatever his name was, number 36, not number 38, that just ran for the touchdown. And I wasn't listening to Keith, and I just thought it was George Rogers because it should have been should George have been Rogers. Rogers. Yeah. <laughs> and we go to commercial, and Keith – just lets me have it, you know. He says, "You got to pay it. You got to lock in here now. Let's go. Now let's get let's let's get through this game." I said, "Okay." So at the end of the game, there in the last thirty seconds, Keith would go. Uh, I want to thank producer Chuck Howard, director Andy Sedaris, my spotter Jerry Klein, and my statistician Mike Swanson. And we'll see you next week from Notre Dame. Okay, thanks. Good night, everything. And I'm packing my stuff up, and I looked at Keith, and I said. Uh, why in the world would you give me a plug at the end of that game? He goes, because I wanted the whole damn world to know who did my freaking stats today. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "Um, should I plan to come to South Bend next week? He says, have I fired you? And I go, no. He says, well, I'd have my butt on a plane next week to South Bend. I said, okay, I'll be there. I'll be there. Who's your favorite athlete? Ooh. The one guy you just love, like, dealing with on a daily basis. Oh, man, dead air is bad for radio. I wish cameras could see me thinking right now. Um, Bob, I'd love to tell you I could narrow it down to one. I can go to cities. Um, Tony Gwynn in San Diego was aces. I mean, he was a friend. I mean, that was back in the day where we were both of the same age. And, and, uh, I mean, Tony just never met an enemy. And uh, tell you a funny Tony Gwynn story. Kerwin Danley called him out on strikes one night, and Tony knew the strike zone better than the plate umpires did. And Tony went a little nuts, and and uh, after the game, you know, said a few things. And then the next day, he comes into his into the ballpark, and you know, KD and and uh, Tony were teammates at San Diego State, but Tony played, and KD went the route of umpiring. And sitting in Tony's locker that day were a dozen baseballs. And uh, with a note on him, and Tony says, hey, come here a second. I said, yeah, what? He says, uh, guess who wants me to sign these baseballs it's for him to have? I go, who? He says, KD. I said, you're going to sign him? He goes, oh, hell no. He sent him back empty. <laughs> <laughs> so so Tony Tony would have been my guy in, in, in uh, San Diego, though I learned a lot from Greg Nettles and Rich Gossage, probably not a lot I could say on a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Garvey was cool. I uh, went to Colorado. Larry Walker and I became pals. Larry was phenomenal and one of the greatest athletes I've ever been around and should be in the Hall of Fame. And anybody who holds course feels against him just hasn't been paying attention. Um, in Arizona, there are there a whole slew of people there, but uh, Luis Gonzalez is as advertised and, and one of the classiest, most quality human beings you'd ever want to be around. Uh, Randy Johnson uh, and I had a had a – love-hate relationship, but ultimately uh, it was love, and 
and we played some golf together and hung out and and heart of gold um just you know probably not one of your cup of tea if you had to walk up to him with a microphone but sure. uh he was actually a lot more fun you know he didn't lose much but he was a lot more fun after losses cuz you know, after a win, if he struck out 12, somebody said, hey, you got 12 tonight. Oh, that's good nice. I should have had 15. You know, he'd be all grumpy about it. Um, but if he got knocked out in the fourth, fifth, or sixth innings, he'd have a, he'd probably have four or five Coors Lights in him by the time he met the media that night. So it was a little more lucid and actually a lot more fun. <laughs> um, so, so I enjoyed my time with him. And then, you know, here in Kansas City, we've been really blessed with the guys who come through that clubhouse and, and not to say Haas and not to say Moose and even Dyson and, you know, guys like that. We've just been, uh, I mean, Ian Kennedy's a joy to be with. Uh, Alex Gordon and I tease all the time that, you know, my first my first inning of baseball with this group of Kansas City Royals was his first inning of baseball with the Kansas City Royals in the big leagues. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of using that against him to, to not quit yet and uh, hopefully keep playing because I – I said, look, you keep going for a little while, and I'll keep going for a little while. We can walk together, and not that that's going to make any big deal. But but Gordo's just been a you know a dream to have in that clubhouse every day for thirteen years. So um, we we've been pretty lucky here to have a lot of these guys. Uh, Whit Merrifield's been a joy to be around. So um, I could never pin down one. You know my 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 water boy days with the Chiefs. Uh, I had so many fathers that. You can't even imagine why I turned out like I did. I mean, I had no chance of going south-south. I mean, I was a brat, but when you got Jim Tyre and Willie Lanier and Len Dawson, Ned Polak and Jack Rudney and Curly Culp and Jim Lynch and Bobby Bell and Buck Buchanan all wanting to kick your butt if you if you step sideways one time, it's amazing how straight you walk out of there, you know, after a day of work, but... Uh, you know, those were the guys who kind of raised me. They knew my mom. She was working in the ticket office and then the coaching office. And and uh, so they, they knew her, and they, they knew to, to keep an eye on the kid when he was back washing jocks. Well, I guess Swanee has lived the life every sports fan has imagined and dreamed of for their entire life. It's safe to say that sometimes a job puts you in the right place at the right time. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates – Price and coverage match limited by state law.